belatedly, Radio Morpork has returned to the airwaves after, what has it been, two weeks. Um, I'm Colin Cairns, and as ever, I'm joined by the vivacious, intelligent and charming Rose Fortune. Rose, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you very much. I described this on our our Twitter as the podcasting Melius and Gretchelina, which I I probably might be mispronouncing one of those, but uh, (laughs) the disc's greatest lovers, or would have been... Had they been born in the same, not been born a century apart on different continents. Mm. So that was us, you know, like we were meant to record last week and we're in different countries. So close, yet so far, the podcasting gold. Ruminate on what might have been, listeners. (laughs) Well, we're here to talk to you about Equal Rights, um, a book which I encourage you to purchase of here today. And this is a story I wanted to say before I got on air. So on my way to your place... It's where we record the podcast, Rose HQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stopped in a Hunches Vegas and I was looking around and this American lady came up and she had a Discworld book and was talking to a woman working behind the counter and was like, oh, well, which one actually starts it? Which one should I start? And I just turned around and told her, I said, well, I'm actually on my way to do a podcast about Terry Pratchett. That's the first one in the series, but I wouldn't recommend it to start with uh, <laughs> because it's a bit, it's very good, but it's, it's quite different than a lot of the others. And she said, oh, well, what would you recommend? And I said, who are you, who are you buying for? I said, my 13-year-old daughter. And uh, I recommended Equal Rights. Although it only hit me as I was saying it. Then I was like, actually, Tiffany Aiken would probably be a little better because that's like specifically aimed at YA. So I did pick up two of the Tiffany Aiken ones. And I was like, oh, and these ones too. Oh, but she opted for Equal Rights in the end, which are, I suppose, like essentially like proto-Tiffany Aiken stories, which, we will, uh, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, I felt... Uh, you know, wielding my podcast cultural capital in in reality actually determining on which Pratchett books someone's money's going to and they were like yes I trust you you're a podcast journalist (laughs) this may not have been her exact words really but uh it was it was it was a pretty sweet moment it felt it's where like the the digital reality on which our podcast lies collided with the actual lived reality Mm -hmm. of me being in a shop yeah um it was pretty pretty heavy stuff that's excellent so you're saying that we're practice consultants now yeah yeah all right i'm going to get business cards printed up i <laughs> hope that's all right i hope it's all right with the estate of the refranchise oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh it's certainly all right with me i'm confident we are yeah so, me too yeah but yeah you might have a point there um Legality right. might not be sound so before we uh before we jump into uh, our analysis of equal rights uh we just got a a rundown of the plot for anyone. Um, you mentioned a friend who hadn't hadn't listened to one of our two episodes and hadn't read the books before. Mm-hmm. I didn't think we'd get a lot of those, but I'm, I'm happy we do. But so I suppose this is for anyone who hasn't read it before or hasn't read it in a long time. Um, the eight son of an eight son is a powerful thing in the disc world because eight is a magical number as established quite firmly in the Color of Magic, the first disc world book. It's basically a law of magical nature that the eight son of an eight son will be a wizard. Equal Rights follows the eight child of an eight son. Right before the wizard Drum Billet passes away, wizards generally know they're, they're going to die in advance, he visits the child in question to pass on his staff. And he arrives the day the child is born, hands over the staff, and the story should be quite typical from there. Unfortunately, Drum hasn't checked this out too thoroughly, and so he hands over his wizarding staff to a girl. The actual horror. Unseen University has a no women admittance policy since uh, there is no such thing, has never been such a thing as a female wizard. 
So Escarina, the would-be female wizard, or Esk for short, stays at home in the wonderfully named village of Badass, where she uh, does the respectable thing for a woman with magic and tries to become a witch. She's taken under the wing of, sometimes literal wing, of Granny Weatherwax, and she teaches her the way of medicine, leaves, headology, borrowing the bodies of animals and building a good fire. But it's simply not enough for Esk as uh, her magical staff and as the beginnings of a wizarding education in her head. The only solution is to send her to Unseen University and make them change the rules to admit her. On a long journey to Ankh-Morpork, where the university is, Esk meets a few interesting characters, including shifty bartenders who try to steal her staff, a professional liar, and a troop of wizards heading to UU, including Simon, a stuttering wizard-to-be prodigy. Upon arrival, Esk is rejected, but Granny manages to get a job as a servant, allowing her to at least stay in UU. Simon, meanwhile, is making a name for himself as a teacher, introducing big concepts like other dimensions, perception of the self, the universe condensed to numbers, and quantum all sorts. And there's probably some Plato in there as well. Uh, but big ideas about magic and worlds attracts the attention of the creatures from the dungeon dimensions, who you may remember popping up in Life Fantastic. Simon accidentally causes a hole to be opened into the dungeon dimensions while he's talking to Esk. Her staff spontaneously hits Simon on the head, closing the hole but trapping his mind on the other side. Esk throws the staff away, thinking that it attacked Simon. Then, while trying to rescue him, Esk ends up in the dungeon dimensions herself with no staff to help her. So, Granny and the Arch-Chancellor Arch Cutangle go looking for the staff in a leaky boat that neither of them can sail. After all, the sea and the river and in the Unseen University itself is now flooding and the staff popping up uh, is a million to one chance, and million to one chances happen nine times out of ten. Esk discovers the weakness of the creatures from the dungeon dimensions. If you can use magic, but don't, they become scared and weakened. With the help of Granny and Arch-Chancellor Cutangle, who have retrieved the staff and had, a, had firm words with it on the subject of loyalties, they both manage to transport themselves back to the Discworld, and Esk and Simon go off to develop a new kind of magic based on the notion that the greatest power is the ability not to use all the others. And um, that is that. Um, so yeah, that's that's what happens in it. But um, well, I suppose what were your what? Uh, how long had it been since you read this one, Rose? Years. Yeah. I couldn't even tell you how many. It's definitely been secondary school. It could be nine years. Yeah. Rough estimate. Long time. And what was the, what was your biggest impression reading reading it again? Granny Weatherwax. <laughs> Granny Weatherwax. I was so excited. Granny Weatherwax pops up. Um, it's 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 really funny reading her again from the start. Reading mm-hmm. the first book that features Granny Weatherwax. And I think it's actually going to get better later when we introduce Nanny Og because seeing Granny Weatherwax through somebody else's eyes is actually, I think, so much better than seeing her through her own because she actually has sort of yeah. a running monologue at times here and sort of insecurities and you know why she says the things she says. Yeah. And it sort of takes an element of mystery away from Rani <laughs> Weatherwax. And I think it does work better when she has this impenetrable air of mystery about her in the later books mm. where she's just this unscrutable woman and you can't figure out why she does the things she does, how she keeps herself in the position that she keeps herself in, how she functions at all like it's mm-hmm. <laughs> she's such a great character it's like um, it's like Sherlock Holmes actually I was talking, I said it that you know you need 
to read the the Holmes stories moderated through Watson, like through Watson's account of them, yeah. to have that mystique about Holmes and maintain dramatic tension and the rest. Exactly. It's like you need Granny mediated through Nanny and McGrath. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, a, a chap, a disc world fan I met at a academic convention in Liverpool a year ago, um, I, I tweeted out on her the Radio Morpork Twitter that was reading Evil Rights and struck by how different Granny was and he described her in this book as a cross between her later self and Nanny Og and I thought that was really spot on it is um, yeah like like the business of uh, when she gets the job as a as a servant and she's sort of taking um, like almost like bribes and fancy second hand clothes <laughs> yeah from um, from Mrs. Whitlow uh, the university um, like what would you call her like head maid or um that really reminds me of like that bit in you know the, like bits in soul music where like nanny mooches off the the traveling players when the three don't have to meet meet them on the way and i think nanny just hops on hops it robs a lift into town off them takes you sandwiches yeah or the bits where like um yeah kind of like uh how, how much she enjoys play acting at that uh at that ball in which is abroad um or kind of like how she'll sort of swallow her pride enough to simper up to uh, Casanunda when she needs him to do something yeah. and which is abroad like that sort of um, I suppose that kind of practicality before pride element and just sort of like um, greed is a strong word but I suppose uh, a shameless like desire or pleasure in something like just like getting these getting these new fancy clothes is more, much would much more read as like a nanny-esque thing than a granny-esque thing to me it is, and particularly there's red mm-hmm. in the lining yeah, of the cloak. Yeah. And, yeah, Eska's surprised, but I was like, oh, Granny Weatherworks is wearing red! Yeah. No, 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 no. Actually, she says that in Witches Abroad. She red's no colour for a witch's boots. <laughs> exactly. I, I do love the line in Equal Rights Twitter, I'm dressing like a quite respectable raven. <laughs> <laughs> I overlook that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is accurate for witches. Very accurate for Granny Weatherwax. Yeah. One thing I thought was really interesting about her, and I suppose it's, it's probably true of all of them, but it sort of struck me here, uh, was her um, her like semi-literacy. Um, mm. Because it's particularly foregrounded here when she's trying to write letters to the Art Chancellor, and you know you see as the reader that they're really badly spelt and things, and he's like he later confesses that he didn't take them seriously. Yeah. And I thought. Now, I, I admit that like, when I say this, I can't really think of an example offhand, but I feel like it's rare enough for an author to kind of um, celebrate an illiterate character without finding a way to cure their illiteracy, you know what I mean? Without like uh, making it about like, oh, this this like person is really strong a lot of other ways, but they're like semi-literate and that's, that's a bad thing and this is about them improving at it, you know? Mm. And like, I'm like absolutely like an advocacy for literacy and the rest but I, I just think there's something feels more like a more um mature less rigid worldview on Pratchett's part that he can have this semi-literate character and she'll still show her strengths in other departments like in like the kind of like the headology the sort of common sense practicality and you know iron determination and kind of folk wisdom Mm-hmm. Uh, without like you know, without ultimately sort of falling back on, oh yeah, but the written words the really important part, you know. And particularly um, for a book that the whole thing is about the difference 
between witch magic and wizard magic and wizards something so logocentric and based all around like the written word and institutions and so on it would really undercut that whole the whole point of them being kind of um you know ha- uh, having how i suppose having different strengths and neither one being entirely better than the other if you has or you know but become literate to make your way in the in the wizarding world but yeah i know it, it, it struck me as just something that I feel like you don't see in a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of books, like a semi-literate character that we're not meant to just pity. <laughs> no, you're right there. Mm. You're definitely right, and I think that shows up even in what she's teaching esque. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the only time it really seems to be a problem. Is it's it's fine for Granny Weatherwax to to not be fully literate, and you know you see that pop up again with her sign that says "I ain't dead," <laughs> which is wonderfully misspelled. But when she's teaching esque. And then Esk has to go and try and become a wizard and she goes to the library yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tries to pick up these tremendously huge books mm-hmm. and decides to start reading from these huge tomes. That, uh, there's a lot of, really reminded me of, um, have you read the Bromeliad, his Truckers, Diggers, Wings trilogy? Oh, I've only read one of them. Um, but, like, reading is this big thing in it for all the gnomes that, like, it's a closely guarded secret. And I think the line does recur about in, um, in Truckers and in equal rights about like oh women's women's brains overheat if they read um <laughs> so let that be let that be a, a lesson to your rose before you before you hop into mortar or whatever next mm-hmm. i want you to keep like like an ice but you know an ice pack beside you in case your brain starts to overheat that's a good tip good um, tip for our readers as well yeah <laughs> but uh yeah but there, there is a, th- a thing of that as well about like the the concept of what about a book taught you to uh, to read other books mm. um and like, oh wow you know it's an interesting idea and it's essentially what esk is looking for and she's convinced it's going to have hopping bunnies on the front yeah, cover. yeah which is lovely <laughs> and it's perfectly true mm-hmm. but she's looking for a how to read book in unseen university's library well um, i'd say fine you know there's there's no limits to that library as we as we later discover that's true but i'm not sure it's a friendly library <laughs> Um, just with the whole uh, difference between witches and wizards thing, uh, like it's interesting that given that the, the first two books didn't even pass the Bechdel test, and that like you know there's not like we, we I think I, I mentioned last podcast how Betten, even though she isn't fully fleshed out, still feels like you know a kind of this dis- seed of the better female characters he later write. Yeah. Um, but you know, overall, like there's, you know, you never see two female characters talking, and this is a book where the two main characters are, you know, like a, an old woman and a little girl, and it's all about this sort of like the um, the folly of kind of patriarchal institutions in barring women and you know, kind of getting their heads up their own arse as far as the reputation goes. Uh, and in fact, uh, I, I did read researching this that when this was read out on the BBC's Woman's Hour program. Um, soon enough after it was uh after it was released um a lot of people thought that the author was a woman because he like the third book he wasn't very well known at the time it's just course, like yeah. terry pratchett the name is um kind of you know uh asexual it could be terry with an eye you know um uh so people would be writing letters to like you know miss terry pratchett or miss <laughs> pratchett and uh, apparently now i don't know this part seems apocryphal to me but apparently some of them like couldn't believe when they were told that it was a man that had written it you know to, to me it doesn't feel like quite so radical that you would think like there you know there's no way a man could write that but i don't know maybe i'm kind of a i'm i'm in a 
a happy bubble of surrounded by you know a lot of men who are reasonably enlightened on gender inequality. But sorry, I was getting what I was getting with with all that was that while this is obviously a big step forward in the discord in terms of uh, gender roles, and obviously it made quite a big impact at the time. Uh, do you think that to a certain extent the the gender stuff in it is sort of broadly essentialist? You know what I mean? It's, it, there's definitely a thing of like. Like, you know, women are good at this kind of thing, like magic from the earth and men magic from the sky. Yeah. And they're both sort of, you know, definitely seem to have their plus points and their drawbacks. But it's a kind of like, I don't know, it's interesting with me because it's almost like saying like, you know, never the twain shall meet. But ultimately the whole book is about Esk being a a sort of hybrid of the the two forms of knowledge. But um, I I suppose the, the part that, sort of made it seem almost problematic to me it was more retrospective that because it's granny weatherwax i sort of like thought automatically oh she like her point of view is going to be the right one <laughs> so you know and and she's she's like uh you know she's obviously not as sort of um like haughtily contemptuous and thoughtless as the like treatle and the patriarchs of uu but she's still very close-minded on the like no women have got to be witches men have got to be wizards the, the two shouldn't mix yeah um, and it's weirdly like it's it's drum billet when she goes to visit him when he's a, a tree like an apple who's saying you know oh no you know I, I think actually it's like witcher, witching wizarding is just a concept it's just an identity and he sort of waffles about it you know he kind of like in the way that wizards tend to but his point oh and I was reading I was like I, 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 I agree with that you know and I suppose ultimately the, the book does like vindicate the mixing the two with esque but because Granny Weatherwax will later become this this you know force of nature. Like reading it, seeing horror, I was like, it, it was really weird to, you know, um, basically have horror kind of advocating a view I wouldn't entirely agree with, and then sort of realizing that oh, I'm probably not meant to entirely agree with it in in this book. Like she's not. Yeah, no. that's true. That's true, and I thought it was very funny at the end. Like it it does end with Esk being sort of allowed into Antonio University and, mm-hmm. and okay maybe a woman can be a wizard maybe maybe we won't be so reductive and yeah. maybe we won't be so closed doors but one of the last lines of dialogue that Jean the Arch-Chancellor has is he's threatening her that he's going to make her an honorary wizard and she replies well I'll make you an honorary witch and the two of them are like oh oh no yeah. but neither of them will accept the possibility like they'll they'll accept that maybe they'll allow somebody else yeah. to, to join their university but the the concept of Granny Weatherwax being associated with wizardry, mm-hmm. the concept of Cut Angle being associated with witchcraft is still so terrible to both of them that it's like their viewpoint has only changed just a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah. For, for somebody else, like it's fine for her. Mm-hmm. But, but for them, no, 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 no. I, I feel like with them though, it's just as much as anything, it's meant to be because they're old and that, you know, like progress will only, you know, progress has to like, like progress, you know, it doesn't jump from point one to point 30. So it's kind of like, like truly young people like Esk and Simon, the whole magical field is getting a bit more progressive and more open-minded unless, you know, based on a binary. Mm. But even though Granny and Cuthangle would be like probably the most like forward-thinking older people in Witchcraft and Wizardly, they're still only going to give so much, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's yeah. true as well, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I did think uh, it's it's kind of interesting... Go, just jumping from the the gender bit to just like um to looking at this as a representation of the the disc world overall that this is came out in january 87 i think and i've got a feeling life fantastic was late 86 i'm not entirely sure when mm. 
And again, I'm, I'm still not sure whether he had written Life Fantastic any earlier because Color Match came out in 83. But this, you know, publication dates, at least they were hot in the heels of one another. And this is a, a huge change in how the, you know, how the Discworld's depicted. Like, for one thing, you have a lot more, in in terms of, in, in the fact that it's like it's plot, that it's no longer just satirizing fantasy sword and sorcery conventions like the first two. Yeah. And, okay, we don't have, you know, witchcraft and wizardry um, in that sense, at least. Don't know any Wiccans or anything mm-hmm. uh, in, in in our world. But that kind of, you know, uh, like Battle of the Sexes, sort of like a strictly regulated gender institutions and ideology is definitely something uh, we can uh, really relate to. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the, the sort of journey from Lankra, from Badass to Ankh-Morpork, and the contrast between them is... Um, it isn't just like, oh, these are, you know, wild, disparate fantasy settings. It really feels like it's kind of like rural, urban divide that, again, like is relatable from a real world point of view. Mm. Like uh, the, the way he sends up Granny's distrust of urban environments to um, when they go to, what's the village to go to where they visit Hilta Gothfunder, the other witch? Oh, I can't remember the name. Of yeah, it. but but in any case, like it's it makes it clear that, you know, it's sort of a, a busy trading crossroads but like in terms of it's act, like it's actually not that big like it's not like a lot you know probably nothing over two stories but to granny this is like this the city and this you know these people are too dodgy by half so then when she gets to Morbork, it's even more overwhelming and i feel like that you know that sort of like country person you know distrustfully finding your way around the city is a lot kind of a is a lot, I suppose, a much more relatable use of Ankh Morpork than just it as this sort of wretched hive of scum and villainy where you'll find like heroes and trolls, and which you still will as it goes on. But you know what I mean? In, in Life Fantastic and Color Magic, it's very definitely a fantasy setting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, it's sort of being used to reflect something in, you know, in, in real life. That's true. That's true, and it's something that Terry Pratchett goes on to do so much more, but this, mm-hmm. this is really the first hint of it, mm-hmm. where he's actually tackling honest to god real world big issues and, and ideas and and yeah reality yeah instead of just tackling genres and conventions yeah and you even see it in, in like the names that you know oh like escarina i suppose isn't coming but her surname's smith and even even weatherwax is a bit eccentric but like you know it's it's you could, you could it's like along the names of like those kind of english names like like penny fetter or elphinstone or you know that seem kind of like yeah, odd but they're there they exist um and simon you know yes uh i suppose to you know rincewind two flower <laughs> trimon and the rest um yeah. yeah there's a there's a definite feeling that the kind of the disc world is coming closer to home um yeah you're definitely right there mm-hmm. it's definitely more grounded in reality mm-hmm. while obviously being about magic yeah yeah <laughs> what did you think actually speaking of that like how he says that we, we talked before about Pratchett's um, what we call like his long his long zoom beginnings where he sort of starts out in like the first two like he begins you know out in space looking at great at you and yeah. zooms you into the action and later once he'll begin at a big concept and zoom you into a story but this, and this one he begins it's like uh, I think I alluded to it before he talks about like you know why Gandalf never got married and this is a story about that yeah and uh, I, f- I found it a, a bit jarring. Like, I thought, like, there's a there's a fine line, but there's a line between, like, the stuff like, 
say later, Witches Abroad, where he'll begin, we're talking about the nature of stories, you know, but it's still within the Discworld. Like, the Discworld, you know, that, like, not only on a meta level is, say, Witches Abroad about stories, but the actual plot is about stories as well, you know? <laughs> so, like, it, it makes, whereas that, like, um, the, the meta level of that is, you know, one step too far. Like, he's talking about how, ma- basically, how magic is depicted in our world, like in the history of, you know, fantasy literature, yeah. like and alluding to characters that are outside of that universe, like Gandalf and that, that I felt was just um, a little too jarring. It's from a, a talk he gave, I think called Why Gandalf Never Got Married. I think he, <laughs> oh, gave really? it, he gave it between Color Magic and Life Fantastic. And like, you can definitely see like the kernel of a lot of the ideas he used in Equal Rights and all like talking about, you know, sort of, uh, like sell this weird celibate patriarchal ideal in wizardry and exploring it, um, oh. and uh, I'll put that I'll put that up and we um, when we post this on the on the blog I'll put up a link to that, but uh, but yeah that, that I like so a line very like that is in you know is in that talk and I felt at home there but like I feel like the start of the book it feels it feels pretty jarring you know yeah no I I do think you're right mm-hmm. and you did mention this in the last podcast as well and so I. It's not even I was keeping an eye out for it, but as soon as I started the book, I was like, oh, that's what you meant. Yeah, it is. It's quite jarring. And it's a bit early in the book to be breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I think it does sort of alienate you a little bit from the story. Like it takes a step back from the story and then you have to sort of sink back up to where the story takes you. Yeah, yeah. So it does sort of kick you out for a little bit. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of them sprinkled throughout this, and like in Middle East, like there's um, um, one that's like, oh, I can't read my own writing here to see. <laughs> but, but it's. Oh, yeah, here we are. Uh, but Granny had spent a lifetime bending recalc- recalc- recalcitrant creatures to her bidding, and while Esk was a surprisingly strong opponent, it was obvious that she would give in before the end of the paragraph. Oh yeah, which, which is like I, I laughed out loud when I read that, but it still feels like you know it's it's that it's that tin line again. Yeah, you know, uh, like and, and I don't know. I mean, I feel like who am I to kind of criticize practice writing? I said that that one that one makes me laugh, but I, I sort of I just have this feeling that like I know there's something that feels a little less deft and a little more clumsy, like even if you are getting a laugh to drag the reader out of the, the world like that. Um, and as I said, I'd, I'd be interested to see if you see. If they kind of you know uh, disappear a little, or uh, I have a feeling like they fade as as the disc world progresses, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it does fade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I laughed at that as well. I remember it now that you said it. I think it would probably have worked just fine. I think that that joke about the paragraph would have been fine if it hadn't started with the Gandalf and the Merlin, and if you hadn't, mm-hmm. you know, if they hadn't have had that first joke. You know, I I think it's fine in the middle of the story, but maybe for the for the long zoom out. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not to be <laughs> referencing other books, and that's the other thing as well. I mean, Gandalf isn't even a historical character. Like Merlin, you could at least say, yeah, mm-hmm. he could be referencing another dimension. You know, the Round World. But then Gandalf, he's referencing a book from the Round <laughs> World, which is like a whole new level of meta. There's there's a uh, there's fodder for a crossover there. <laughs> Oh I'm God. sure someone has has written. You're right. Yeah. It has to have happened. Yeah, there's a. Uh, remember, I used to be a big fan of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, and there's a really 
funny fan fiction online but the main character of that ending up in Discworld oh and really he just kind of, yeah he sort of runs to Gamut through um, like through loads of the main characters I think he initially shows up in Ankh Morpork and then then ends up in Lankra and yeah it's uh, it's pretty funny like admittedly part of it was just me as a like, big fan of boat series it's like oh wow every time you know these two characters I know meet yeah. so it's hard to judge it objectively but I remember enjoying it um, but going, going back to what we were um, what we were talking about about the, the Discworld um, this kind of being a step forward towards the more I suppose the more as you say grounded Discworld that we'd see later on from the wild magic filled kind of fantasy playground of the first two books mm. Unseen University is interesting in that way because, um, like, there's parts uh, that seem to foreshadow what what it will later become as this sort of you know place that uh, like the, you know sends up the kind of um, like sort of arrogance, but ultimate like silliness of you know these uh, stuffy patriarchal institutions that you'll see with you know the dean and the senior wrangler and the rest of them like mm. the part where uh treetle and cut are talking about simon's theories and they're both basically saying like how they don't really understand what he means and then like cut says something along the lines of like oh yeah but i don't understand at a higher level than normal people don't understand <laughs> and yeah. he just seems genuinely really satisfied by this <laughs> um sort of like you know echoes that and um yeah and then it's 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 uh, you, uh, you compared to say Life Fantastic, where you had you know Trimon, who admittedly is a bit of a bit of a head case even by wizard standards, but still like trying to kill Galder or Weatherwax, and Galder seeing kind of nothing really out of the ordinary about this. Like it's it's sort of par for the course that you know these like wizards are in this constant state of kind of cutthroat politicking and you know espionage and mm-hmm. uh, maneuvering for power. That will later come back in in sorcery, but for the time being, at least, like in this one, you don't see it at all. You know, like uh, Cut Angle's like universe, Unseen University is very much like a proto Reed Cully one. Like it doesn't seem like his position is ever under any threat from you know any from Treetle or anyone else trying to no. kill him in the way that Galder's was, or you know the wizards in sorcery will be. And in fact, Cut Angle in general is like a proto Reed Cully, like right down to his relationship with Granny. And you have the position yeah. reversed where uh, in Lords and Ladies you find out how Rick wrote loads of letters to Granny after they, um, after he left Flonker and she never answered. And in this you have Granny writing letters to UU that he never answered. Yeah, you're right. But um, yeah, but it's just, uh, it's odd that it feels more consistent with the Unseen University we'll later see, but inconsistent with the one we'll see like almost immediately afterwards in Sorcery. Like, you know, two, <laughs> two books away. The, the Unseen University of Sorcery is back to the, uh, the, the the one, like the kind of, the cutthroat, you know, um, kind of magical Borgia's uh, Game of Thrones of Life Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You're right. I guess maybe this is Pratchett kind of trying to test the water and see yeah. see what the best way he can go with this is. Mm-hmm. And I think with Red Cully, he definitely finds the right path, but maybe it just took a little while for him to figure out what the best kind of humour to work with was. Yeah. And the best kind of characterization as well. Yeah. <laughs> Game of Thrones esque. <laughs> it's not often you can apply that to very um, practice. There we go. <laughs> um But but it's it is consistent with the the earlier ones in that like there's much more magic all over the place. 
you know, like like the whole plot is based around Esk using these like you know wizard and uh, witch magics and you know the staff kind of like doing all sorts of things throughout and Simon stuff like that's much more in keeping with the early Discworld than the later stuff where you you know you know magic would be kind of like limited to one or two significant bits in the book mm. where um where someone would do it yeah uh, you know it's funny as well actually that um the first two the color of magic and the light fantastic set so much stock in how magic works mm-hmm. and how wizardry works and how there's got to be the equal force of equal momentum and, yeah. and everything requires a corresponding force but those rules just don't seem to apply to esque yeah, it's really although funny. it does, it does make a point of that. That um, oh, there's there's a nice line here um, about the, the power of ah, here it is. A person ignorant of the possibility of failure can be a half brick in the path of the bicycle of history, <laughs> which immediately made me think of Rincewind defeating the sorcerer with his half brick in a sock at the end of sorcery. Yeah, but um, kind of making making a virtue of her ignorance in that like. Uh, I think like Galder and the Life Fantastic does the thing where he displaces the waste to fly up to the Tower of Art, mm-hmm. and Rid Cully later does it in Lords and Ladies. But the fact that she doesn't know it can't be done, so she just does it. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, uh, and as much as being about like any um, uh, gender thing, the book is also about just like different um, conceptions of knowledge, like the idea that fixed knowledge can kind of inhibit innovation. You know what? Like she. Uh, teleports to you know teleports to start because she doesn't know it's impossible to do that yeah and I think there's a is it when when Granny and Cutangle are getting the are rescuing the stop at the end and uh, I think he tries to levitate it out and uh, he goes it's impossible but I'm going to try anyway and then he does it yeah and there's that sort of feeling of them um, you know uh, of Unseen University being such a stuffy full of itself um uh, stagnant institution like both from you know most clearly symbolized in its refusal to allow women in mm-hmm. but that that also you know that also reflects in the fact that it actually uh stymies the path of knowledge of anyone there because they're just so set in their ways of doing things yeah that's um, exactly what it yeah. is yeah um i was, I was thinking about that about the uh the knowledge in the book being sort of like yeah um a, a priori versus a posteriori um and a, a priori knowledge is is knowledge you know before the fact like if you know say uh you know have you ever been to africa no and neither have i but you know we read oh mount kilimanjaro is the highest mountain in africa mm. i really hope i'm not wrong about that <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, you, you read it and you accept it and you know if, if any like if you kind of like you'd answer that in the unlikely and terrifying event someone put a gun to your head and said what's the highest mountain in Africa you'd answer it with sort of probably a considerable amount of terror but full confidence in the rightness of your answer even though you've never been there yeah and that's like a priori you know you you, you know it before you experience it because you've read it mm-hmm. and a posteriori is like you know it because you've experienced it you know you like a children learn you know babies like they say whatever they um put something in their mouth and it's you know it's it's unedible and then they know it's unedible because mm. they put it in their mouth uh and like we see as saying like a priori knowledge sort of ham- ultimately kind of hampering the the development of wizardry mm. but it's interesting like it's there in witchcraft as well with um granny has such a hard time getting asked to actually accept the stuff she tells her 
like you know that scene in which Esk is trapped in the body of the the eagle is it or like some kind of bird yeah because um you know she can't just like granny's been doing this for years and she knows it inside out but Esk has to know herself like when when granny says you just borrow the mind you can't fully take it she's mm-hmm. like no i think i can i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> do it like i'm gonna find out that way yeah um and again similar to the uh i suppose similar to the uh kind of deft more the more deft view of of gender politics done done appears on first reading the a priori a posterior thing is sort of split down the middle as well like you know a, a priori can be kind of inhibiting to wizardry but it also uh it's also a safeguard sometimes you know like were it not for granny uh easily could have just like lost herself in the body of that eagle just yeah. because she had to know and was going to jump headlong in even though she's been told uh she shouldn't mm-hmm. um which speak of the devil uh what did you what did you think of esk given that she you know she pops up here oh. just pop up for like another 30 something books <laughs> until um i shall wear midnight i think you know and i sort of made a made a I made a big impression on readership along the way i have heard that a lot of people are clambering clamoring for her to return earlier than she did so what did you think of her yeah i'm not surprised people want her to return i think she's a great character mm-hmm. and i think probably because she ends up unifying the ideas of witchcraft and wizardry which is sort of never done again Mm -hmm. she definitely makes a big impression because of that plus it's the fact of learning magic from from a from a viewpoint character from a point of view character that's that young that you sort of it's a great way to introduce witchcraft yeah like you've introduced wizardry through the eyes of tourist seeing seeing the disc for the first time mm-hmm. and that they've introduced witchcraft using a child who's growing up and has to be taught the very basic rules of how everything works and i think that's a great way to go as well so because you're seeing witchcraft through her eyes for the first time and because you're meeting granny weatherwax through her eyes and everything like i think you end up probably identifying with her a lot and liking her a lot she's very smart yeah and she's very quick on the uptake very ambitious wants to learn everything wants to do everything mm-hmm. is borderline about to attempt to borrow the mind of the great Atuan, which is ambition on legitimately a world scale yeah, yeah. <laughs> that bit that bit was great actually i completely forgot about it they said it but did you know where she kind of feels the the enormity of the mind and yeah. um yeah i think she's brilliant she's like uh she started running she was like a proto tiffany aiken um mm. and it struck me that she's like uh I feel like her only flaw to me when I was reading it was that she's a bit too much of a, a Mary Sue. Like, I know Pratchett cast her after her his daughter, Rihanna, who's oh. a, a games developer now, and she own, now owns the right style of books. So run up by her if you want to get her business cards with Thank you. Pratchett consul- <laughs> consultants on it. But, um, you know, I don't know if that would have, like, obviously, I'm sure he loves his daughter, loved his daughter very much, so that would have affected his kind of roast interview. But I feel like... Uh, like the one bit that sort of uh, that annoyed me was when she has the dream where she's on in the dungeon dimensions, mm-hmm. not the end where she's there with Simon, but she has this dream that she's in the place, and she's really just like unimpressed and it's like oh drat, it's this dream again, <laughs> you know, um, which is sort of funny, but I also felt like you know it, it kind of like nips in the bud a chance to just build up a real sense of dread about the creatures from the dungeon dimensions and just as well like ultimately it's like. Even if she is very uh, precocious um, and, you know, uh, 
intelligent for her age she still is like you know a nature old little girl if she's having these like dreams that he describes in such wonderfully vivid terrifying terms the chittering insect noises and it just you know huge flat expanses of dead sand like i feel like she would be more scared you know um and that, that was the one bit or i remember thinking like it just felt too much like uh he was he was reluctant to i don't know give her give her a kind of put put her on the back foot so to speak mm-hmm. like there's a great bit early in the wee free man where um oh the word has gone from my head now but it's something about like tiffany thinking about some certain uh, a certain word and the narrator sort of kind of takes the piss out of the fact that you know she's using this word as a kind of like to, to sound to sound really intelligent oh, and she wouldn't yes. want you to know that is it per psychological yeah something like that yeah it's, it's the it's the thing where you read it mm-hmm. and, and, and you think oh yeah i know that word yeah and and i, I feel like like that's a little bit because it, feel, it feels very true for like a child for, mm. a, for a smart child that they kind of you know they would have that sort of uh unsell like unself-aware conceit about their their um own intelligence mm-hmm. uh that he sort of like doesn't kind of you know poke fun at esque and, and much to and and to, to, to a similar extent that's true and then um i i feel like like yeah i've only i've only read we free man i'm quite excited about reading the others when we get there but um i feel like even in that he allows tiffany to get like scared and overwhelmed much more than he does esque like it really only happens with her uh, when she's in the mind of the, the board and it's it's fading away mm-hmm. and then at, at the very end but I, I know otherwise there's a lot of like he sort of and particularly in, in big contrast to Rincewind who we've just read <laughs> who I know his whole thing is that he's a coward yeah. but the fact that like every situation he's dropped in he's reacting stark terror and you know she's dropped in not quite as many dangerous situations but still some pretty dodgy ones and just sort of you know shrugs a lot of them off and Nah. but I'm 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 going on it's at length. Like she is a really <laughs> enjoyable character to read about. It was just sort of um, uh, yeah. I just kind of thought like that was um, interest. Those those flaws were interesting because you see how he sort of progressed as a writer and you know almost cleaned them up by the time he gets to the Tiffany Aiken books. That's true. Hmm. Esk is eight. Yeah. Okay, I missed that when I was reading it. Oh, I, I, I might have got it wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she's eight. She seems so much... Well, now that you've said it. Mm. <laughs> she does handle things way too maturely for an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She can handle anything. She might be too intelligent for an eight-year-old. Yeah. And, and she sort of wanders off on her own quite a lot. And, yeah. And ends up with people trying to steal things from her, and she's grand, and mm. gets lost, and she's grand, and ends up in the dungeon and mentions that she's grand. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't caught that she that she was so young. Yeah, like yeah. it does actually kind of beggar belief then. Yeah, if she's eight, my god. Um, but I, I find it like it's it's difficult with um, I'm, I'm sure it's all the harder writing it. But I remember when I worked in the bookshop and when you know parents would come in looking for for kids and I'd ask what age she were, mm. and I find it really hard to gauge. Like I'm like. You know, how how mature are you really at that age? Or you know, like, how, is this t- like um, you know, I oh maybe this shrub, this book and thing is that too much or too little? Like you know, there's there's a big variance for kids, but uh, yeah. but yeah, she probably she probably is a bit a bit too capable for an eight year old, but um, oh maybe she's no, just an incredibly advanced genius. Yeah, like. oh, well she is that. Yeah, but you know, geniuses have their flaws too. Mm. Um. 
Right. So, uh, do you do you have any further thoughts on on the book? For I wanted to talk just a little bit about the different kinds of magic, mm-hmm. because I kind of thought it was really interesting how how Terry Pratchett defines wizardry and defines witchcraft, and it ends up being that like witchcraft is magic from the earth and wizardry is yeah, magic pulled yeah. from the sky and wizardry is all power mad and lights and bangs and witchcraft is all earth and things like that um, oh yeah somebody says that women's magic isn't high magic and I kind of love how he used magic to highlight all of these gender issues Yeah, like of, of all the ways he could have highlighted a really incredibly pervasive issue that you know is an issue globally to everybody in the yeah. world men versus women sexism and you know ambition for women <laughs> it's how their magic works and it's women having magic from the earth and I I just I think by the end I wasn't really sure whether it was a good way to define magic having women be, be like magic from the earth almost seemed like women's magic is domestic magic but maybe that's not where it was coming from at all. But it, it it felt like a strange way to define the two yeah, different yeah. types of magic and wizard magic being magic with words and all. I I feel like like part of it is kind of um, like like his issue with it is seems to be less that there uh, um there like magic of the earth or magic of the sky and more that you would value uh, one so much above the other. Like, you know, we talked about the literacy thing earlier and you talked about how he's like using magic to apply to all of gender issues. Like say, like, uh, I suppose like literacy would be a good example where it's it's like a skill that's really kind of like, you know, highly valued. And if someone went without it, you see this is enormous drawback where there's all sort of, you know, um, like uh, illiterate or semi-literate oral cultures and traditions that we wouldn't value as much in our society mm-hmm. because we've kind of chosen to... And I, uh, I feel like like witchcraft is sort of representing that, like all the kind of um, areas women would have, like you know, I was speaking really broadly on a historical basis, like you know, had authority over or dealt with that would have actually been important, but would have kind of been undervalued in historical terms because because they were left to women, you know, mm-hmm. um, like all the you know the, the hair lore and the just like you know solving little problems for village people or as wizards are right at the center of power you know in like more pork um but uh, like ultimately yeah it does it does feel sort of some uh, somewhat like essentialist uh at yes. times just to limit them to one or the other and i said he kind of makes it ambiguous that because you have granny definitely uh prescribes to this view you know she definitely sees like which magic is is this thing it's of the earth it's theology it's um but you have Esk, like uh, Esk's, you know, triumph and ultimate acceptance into Unseen University, undermining the idea that they should be entirely separate. I think he's a little limited in his how he presents all of it by the fact that he only has kind of you know one, yeah, sort of one hybrid character in Esk, like you know, and like she's trying to get from one match to another, and she even has a bit where she talks about how when she would hear Treetle drone on about wizardry. It would make her want to be a witch, but when she'd hear Granny lecture about witchcraft, it would make her want to be a wizard. And that looked like yeah. then she kind of like, "Well, I'm going to be both." Um, so she definitely kind of isn't at home in either world exactly. So you just have your you're just really up with Granny representing witchcraft, and uh, you you guys representing wizardry, mm-hmm. and then that creates a, like a a very 
broad binary where it's not just witchcraft versus witchery. It's like Granny is, um, you know, not only uh, female but also rural, um, and it, like the the wizards are urban. And then there's a heart and head thing. Like I think there's a bit about like witches needing a bit more head and wizards needing a bit more heart, mm-hmm. which actually feels like like kind of untrue compared to the like doesn't ring true with the rest of the book because you know if granny has got a problem it's that she doesn't have enough heart like she's not <laughs> like yeah and uh like um cut angle and the rest of them uh oh, well i'm sure they could do it with a bit more heart but they could also do it with a bit more head and that's the fact that their their kind of their knowledge itself is limited by their their perceptions of it um like we talked earlier about how they think they can't do certain things because they've decided it's impossible yeah like you know that's a head thing rather than a heart thing so I, I feel like because he's limited and essentially you only have like one detailed establishment wizard and cutangle to a lesser extent treetle and one detailed establishment witch and granny the the binary of witchcraft and wizardry becomes really broad you know it's, it's really hard to explore witchcraft in as being a very diverse thing if you've just got well you you have hilda for a uh, for a little while who does show uh witchcraft can be like a, a little more urban and a little more um, commercial and yeah, social and things. Hmm. Um, but I, I feel like it's a problem he kind of he's able to address when you have McGrath and Nanny, and that way you can show like a lot of you know a real diversity in this area of um, female culture and female power. You know that doesn't just necessarily mean one thing; yeah. it means a lot of things. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. I guess that gets developed a lot in, in mm-hmm. later books. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, I suppose that that uh, leaves us with before we before we rank this one, uh, we thought we'd present you with another another minor list, another um, our one of our elephant lists supporting our giant, our huge turtle of our, our major list of all the books, mm-hmm. um, and given that Esk eventually popped back up in I Show Our Midnight, but for a good hum- chunk of the series, she was a one book wonder. Um, and I, I read a lot of like fan theories saying people presumed she died in sorcery, and that was the only thing to explain why she wasn't. Oh. And again, when you know, and like they're just destroying great swathes of the university, uh-huh. which would have been very sad for her to be just like killed off screen like that. It would, um, or off page. Uh, but in honor of her almost one book wonder status, we've got our list of top ten one book wonders. Hmm. Um, so at number, uh, these are characters that have only appeared in one book. And at number 10, we have Bilius, the O-God of Hangovers. <laughs> a very unfortunate deity, but, you know, he finds he finds love in the end. He triumphs. Mm-hmm. Number 9, we've got A.E. Pessimo. Yeah. The the, uh, the auditor of the watch and later probably over-enthusiastic watchman. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the only, I, I love how he's, his transformation from kind of like spineless grey bureaucrat uh, watchman is the only thing that ever visibly shocks veterinary or one of the very few things <laughs> when, when Vimes tells him like veterinary just can't believe it yeah um, at number eight we have Carcer Dunn of, uh, of Nightwatch who's just like a, a wonderful psychopath he's got almost a Heath Ledger Joker-esque quality as a, a force of chaos um, and you know he's not exactly filled out compared to some of the other villains but I just think he fulfills that role as like malevolent psychopath um very well mm-hmm. number seven we've got miss gogol yeah married to a zombie uh um reads the future in pots of jambalaya mm-hmm. 
uh, what's the? She'll be one of those uh, one of those eminence greases, according to according to uh, Granny, when she's talking about her being the power behind the throne. Yeah. Um, number six, we have uh, Ronald Savaloy, Teach, of uh, probably my second favorite member of the the Silver Horde behind Cohen himself. Mm-hmm. You know, going into battle was was as of nothing after being faced with a hostile classroom. <laughs> Number five, we have Vorbis. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about him when we get to Small Gods, because he's an absolutely chilling villain. Yes. Um, yeah. The, and I, I think one of the most, he's one of the most convincing cases Pratchett done of a villain who clearly thinks what he's doing is for for good, and you believe you completely believe that he thinks that you know, uh, yeah, just spooky guy. <laughs> uh, number four, and in that same vein as a villain who believes they're doing everything right, is Lily Weatherwax, uh, who just makes it for a great counterpoint to uh, to Granny. The, the scenes between them are absolutely brilliant, and then like yeah, uh, I think he he builds her up very well. Consider throughout when you see the glimpses of her in the mirror and. Um, yeah, her sort of twisted fairy godmother over reliance on fairy tales. It just uh, feels like, yeah, you know, it's such a a brilliant idea that you know, I you could you could talk to someone who had never read Discworld that would just be familiar with say like Disney films or any kind of fairy tales mm-hmm. and pitch that idea to them like the villain is this you know fairy godmother who forces people into story type archetypes and it's actually horrible for them and it's, <laughs> you know it's I think that would that would suck them in from there. Yeah, you're right. Uh, number three, number three, we have Jeremy Clarkson. Slash, actually, maybe no, we will give that one away, will we? Yeah. Slash yeah. Lobsang Lud. Jeremy Clarkson being one of my favorite Pratchett characters from one of my favorite Pratchett novels, Thief of Time. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's um, delightfully unhinged. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like the two. Um, again, this is massive spoilers, but you're, you know, when we when we get to Thief of Time, we'll be reading out our spoiler summary at the start so but uh i i've only read that the once when i got it from the library but i feel like the the twist of them being the same person hit me completely for six and yet i sort of bought it i you know i, I instantly thought oh yeah they definitely do seem like two sides of one kind mm-hmm. it, it fit together so well which is pretty kind of impressive to do to present two very disparate characters but then you know have them have them actually fit together uh and number two is Mr. Say it with me, say it right. Tiatime. Who <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, yeah, he's brilliant. <laughs> he's, um, yeah, wonderfully, wonderfully chilling villain. Which just um, kind of, uh, I, think, I think it's impressive that he's he's just essentially an assassin. He's like a metaphysical force, like the orders of reality or the new death or, um, you know, or like, or like an ultra powerful sorcerer like Coin or something like Trimon. But he's manages to be a convincing threat to like these anthropomorphic beings like Death and Hogfather. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, and to the extent where I think you have that like initial bit where you think he's he's dead after he crash lands in Unseen University, and then he jumps up, and I just remember finding that so sort of um, jarring because thinking, oh, okay, that's it, that's him done. And then when he got up, I, I suddenly was like, oh, well. All bets are off. What does he do now if he if he gets arrived that you know like what's what's actually going to be the climactic scene that beats him? Yeah, 
I was forever convinced I was pronouncing his name wrong. Well, you do that at your peril. (laughs) And number one is Brother. Yeah, uh, from Small Gods, which I think is a is a big favorite of a lot of Discworld fans. And I was was saying to Rose before we um, before we went on air, I I sort of uh, was pitching for Brother to be number one because um, I just think his his sort of arc of like really naive uh religious devotee in a book that's about deconstructing um organized religion or kind of a theocracy the, the really obvious easy way to go would be for him to progress from naivete to naivete to cynicism and yet pratchett manages to progress him from kind of like naive fate to like a, a more wise fate in a way that just like feels really really uh nuanced and impressive and kind of moving um at points and just the, the bits were um like the the moral uh the moral dilemmas he's put in and kind of comes up trumps with feel both like really powerful and really convincing you, you don't feel like that he's been given an easy way out or that he's sort of too perfect a character like he really seems to have to so many walls is the right thing but struggles to do it yeah um and yeah yeah i really liked him uh so there there only remains for us now to um to rank equal rights in our ever growing but still quite short <laughs> list of our favorite discord novels so far it's number one like fantastic and number two color magic mm-hmm. so where are you thinking this one fits i don't know if you're gonna agree with me i w- <laughs> i would it would be very appropriate that sorry the fact that we have you know like a male and a female presenter and, and <gasps> equal rights would be the one we disagree about. You're right, yes. <laughs> we almost have to. But sorry, go on. Okay. Um, I would be inclined to keep The Light Fantastic at the top mm-hmm. and rank this as number two, then Colour of Magic number three. Because, probably because I had these issues with Granny Weatherwax where I felt like she was still a little bit out of character and it wasn't quite the Granny Weatherwax I was expecting yeah. and and the magics were so binary and and just on the whole, I think I still prefer... The Light Fantastic. How about you? Well, and then the spirit of, of equal rights, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I was curious because I said before how The Light Fantastic was the first Discworld book I ever came across. And I listened to the audiobook like, you know, uh, an inordinate amount of time. So I was very conscious that I have a disproportionate amount of affection for it. Mm. But when I was trying to think about it as objectively as I can, the one big thing that separated them for me is... Um, the ending of of equal rights, and I, I I didn't want to speak to that until we until we got to a point where we were talking about this. But uh, like we spoke when we talked about life fantastic weather, um, Rinswin's fight with Trimon is a little too easy. Um, you <laughs> yeah, know, like he just beat. But but overall, I think the ending to life fantastic is really strong. Like it's a it's a really vivid, you know, kind of like epic feeling climax overall. Mm-hmm. Whereas. Uh, you have some you have like a, a pretty a kind of like nice build to the end here with Eska and Simon with their backs to the wall in the dungeon I mentioned and Simon being possessed by one of the creatures which is you know very very unsettling and uh, in a good way and Granny and Cuthangle going through the the flooded Unseen University which is I believe is probably a nod to Gormenghast because I think he he makes an explicit reference to uh Unseen University being kind of bigger and more labyrinthine than Gormenghast, and mm-hmm. Gormenghast ends with the place flooding, 
uh, so they're kind of floating around on tables and so on mm-hmm. um, and all of that is really good uh, and then just like when they uh, the, the bit where kind of Eskin Simon uh, the, the fact that they don't use magic to beat the um, beat the things from Dungeon Dimensions mm-hmm. is uh, is is very kind of neat bit of reasoning and I think like kind of gives I suppose fits well with the with the book's unorthodox perception on how magic should work mm-hmm um, it does feel a little, a little, like a little disappointing, just plainly from a kind of like narrative excitement point of view, that you're waiting for some sort of showdown, and you know it doesn't come. Yeah. But then the bit where Granny and Kudangle uh, are just having tea, and it's it, it's like really abruptly he offers her a place in the university. She's sort of she's kind of ambivalent, and then it's like, and then Esk and Simon discovered a new branch of magic, and that was that. And uh, like it's it it seems really quickly wrapped up, like. Uh, to a crazy amount, it, it, it was like um, like he was writing under a time limit or something, and looked up and saw that he had like you know <laughs> ten minutes on the clock, and just like banged out this you know wrapped it up really quick. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I, I, I just completely pulled the rug out from under me reading it. Yeah, um, and compared with the sort of the you know the relatively epic ending of Life Fantastic, I think it it, it falls short there. Mm. Um, and even there's that one line about uh, Granny Weatherwax knowing not to give everything away on a first date. Yeah. Which, again, I was like, this is very out of character for Granny Weatherwax. That's a Nanny Old line. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. no, it's not, actually. <laughs> but, you know, it, it almost works as like a like as a meta commentary on this book because we were saying what a it's like a sort of big step forward towards the disc world we, we would later see depicted yeah. in the books. But there's still bits... Hangovers from the earlier ones are characters like Granny that we don't feel are, are fully developed. So, mm-hmm. I mean, probably unintentionally here, he isn't giving away everything on the first our first date with the post, you know, post Rincewind uh, Discworld and with the the witches series in general. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that uh, the the ending I just like found it's it's just it, it's just so. So abrupt to the point of kind of really feeling like a, an anticlimax. Mm-hmm. Um, although it did have that nice bit with the hyper intelligent ants that hints at pyramids, where it says they've discovered the secrets to longevity in their pyramids, which yeah. will of course be a plot point on pyramids, which I liked. <laughs> um, but yeah, just that like that kind of rug getting pulled out under, uh, you know, um, abrupt ending ranks it below Life Fantastic for me. Yeah. Um, yeah okay so that, that's that's we settled uh, and gen- gender equality and all that and uh, very amicable like, yeah reason like cool reasoning and respect between the sexes we've settled that one mm-hmm. equal rights at two behind life fantastic as it stands yeah next week we'll we'll be doing more and we'll have our first guest on the show um our our friend and colleague and longtime discord lover steve hill uh, so don't let that dissuade you if you know Steve from from tuning in, tuning in from just clicking next week. Um, and if you have any if you have any comments on uh, on our discussion on the list on the, the the list of one book wonders on anything we talked about here, by all means get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter or by email or just leave a comment on the blog, um, and we'll be sure to talk about it uh, next time around when we record more. Um, so thanks very much guys until next time see ya bye